What's up, guys? Brian Ratliff here. Just wanted to say thank you for tuning in to Keep the Faith Podcast. Grab your Bibles and let's dig in to the Word of God. $440 million. That was the box office sales of a popular Disney movie that premiered on September 29th, 1991. Interestingly enough, they had an operation budget of $25 million. So if my math is correct, that's about $415 million in profit. I would say that's a pretty good payday. The movie, you might ask, is Beauty and the Beast. How many of you just by a show of hands have ever seen that movie, that Disney movie? Sure, most of us have. It's interesting. Maybe if you have not seen it in a long time, or maybe you've never seen it, just to recap, it will take 84 minutes of your life, and you'll never get that 84 minutes back. But it's about how an arrogant young prince and his castle servants fell underneath the spell of a wicked enchantress who turned him into a hideous beast until he learned how to love and be loved in return. The spirited, headstrong village girl, Belle, enters the beast's castle after he imprisoned her father. And with the help of his enchanted servants, including the Mrs. Potts, Belle begins to draw the cold-hearted beast out of his isolation. Now, surely, we didn't gather here today to talk about a Disney movie. But as we think about this woman who is considered a beauty, a beautiful woman, and as we think about this beast who is considered a hideous beast, I couldn't help but think about Revelation chapter 17. Because it's interesting, when we study the book of Revelation, we know that there's coming a beast who is going to be hideous, and there's going to be a beautiful woman, called woman at least, who is going to be clothed in royalty, clothed with great power and prestige and beauty, and it's going to take this whole world underneath her spell. And today, as we come to Revelation chapter 17, I label my thoughts today with these words, the beauty and the beast of the apocalypse. The beauty and the beast of the apocalypse. And as we dive into this chapter, I want you to understand this thought, that today most of the message is going to be about information of the future, but as we try to understand what's going on here in this passage and how it all relates to our lives today, here's the takeaway thought I want us to leave with. Worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. Worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. As we come to Revelation chapter 17, we're going to see John is taken away by one of these seven angels who poured out one of these bowls, or as the King James says, vials. And this judgment that was plaguing this earth, these are the last of three series of judgments, the, vo- the bowls or the vials that are going to be poured out upon humanity. And we've seen those in the previous chapters. They're the worst of the judgments of God. And this angel calls John to come here and he says, I'm going to show you about this great whore of Babylon. And we see in the middle of this vision, he is taken to the wilderness or the desert and there 
The Bible speaks about how she is sitting upon this beast, and this beast has a unique, a unique, I'm talking unique, set of heads and set of horns. The Bible says he has seven horns and, excuse me, seven, excuse me, seven heads and ten horns. That, my friends, is a beast. And this beautiful woman is sitting upon this beast. And the Bible begins to share this expectation of this coming uh, great whore of Babylon. The Bible speaks about how this angel began after John sees and wonder. This angel begins to explain here in this text. And then we see about the extermination of this beast. About how Jesus is going to overthrow this beast and this great whore. Now all that to say... There's been a lot of debate about who this great whore of Babylon is. And today, I'm not going to get into all the details, but some have tried to say this is Rome. Some have tried to say this is Islam. Some have even tried to say this is America. But as we study scripture and as we hear God's word proclaimed in truth and sincerity, we don't want to add anything to God's word, but we don't want to subtract anything from God's word. And so today, here is what Babylon is teaching, or what it is here from this passage. Babylon is a world system that opposes God, the Word of God, and the Son of God. That's all it is. Babylon is a world system that opposes God, the Word of God, and the Son of God. If I could elaborate on that, here's kind of a summarization statement of these 18 verses in chapter 17. The great whore of Babylon is a worldwide political and religious system that opposes the sovereign plans of God. The great whore of Babylon is a worldwide political and spiritual or religious system that opposes the sovereign plans of God. I find it interesting that the theme of the book of Revelation is God is sovereign and he is sitting on his throne and he is going to come again and bring judgment to this world. And so even in the midst of all of these catastrophes and turmoils and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls being poured out upon humanity, we see God is still seated at his rightful place on his throne in heaven and nothing in this age or the age to come takes God off guard or by surprise now before we dive in here we need to understand a little bit about the historical background of Babylon you see Babylon didn't begin here in Revelation chapter 17 Babylon didn't even begin in the days of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar Babylon actually began back in the book of Genesis chapter 10. And we read about a mighty man named Nimrod who goes and starts this town called Babel, located in what we call now modern-day Iraq or Iraq, located about 59 miles away from Baghdad, around the Euphrates River. And it's interesting that when you begin to study the historical background of Babel and its association with Babylon, we see that it was the birthplace of idolatry. It was the birthplace of worshiping false deities. And ultimately, when you study the Roman culture and you study the Greek culture and you study the Babylonian culture and the Medes and the Persian culture and the Egyptian cultures, all of their pagan idols stems from Genesis chapter 10. And Babel is a place where they are literally shaking their fists at God. They build this tower and biblical historians, we believe this was some type of pyramid or ziggurat tower that they were literally going to build it up and they were going to worship their own selves and their own gods and make it climb all the way to heaven. 
And time would go on and we would read all the book of the Old Testament. You study them all and you see that, that these idols would begin to creep into the nation of Israel and they would begin to worship Baal and Ashtaroth and all of these other pagan gods. And that would lead us to Babylon, the kingdom of Babylon, when Nebuchadnezzar would come on the scene and overthrow Assyria. And he would rule and reign, and he was a very haughty and arrogant and prideful man. And he looked out all over Babylon, and he said, look what I have done. And in his pride, we see his downfall. And there he was trying to build a statue and declare everybody to bow down and worship his statue. And we see that this Babylon is an, a system that is kind of political and spiritual and religious. And all it does is it, first of all, opposes God. It opposes the Word of God and the Son of God. It is a worldwide system that literally is in opposition to the sovereign plans of God. In other words, Satan is behind those pagan gods. Satan is behind those false pseudo-religious beliefs and behind all of those pulpits of those other religious belief systems, we see that Satan is the one preaching. And in fact, I believe Satan is in the pulpits of many churches today that are not preaching God's word. And so Satan is behind all of the pseudo-worship of God. So the thought for today is this, Worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. That is our mission as the church today. And today we see in Revelation chapter 17 that Satan in his divisive and deceptive ways is going to coax the whole world into coming into this system and end up worshiping his being and false antichrist. To deny the reality of ancient Babylon is literally to deny history itself. We actually will see Babylon mentioned in extra biblical references. In fact, when you begin to study history, you can go and, and study many different sources, but the National Geographic, they actually have an article that speaks about the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it's interesting, one of those ancient wonders was, was not in Rome necessarily, but not in Greece, but actually in Babylon called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. And the Greek historians, Strabo and Diodorus Siclus, they witnessed this great, this great agricultural engineer on the side of the cliff. It featured blooming flowers, fruit, exotic, all these different things, and impressive waterfalls. And we see that it was built in the rain of the one that the Bible calls Nebuchadnezzar, between the years of 605 and 562 B.C. Now, all that to bring us to Revelation chapter 17. Because what is going to take place here, the whole debate is, is see, I think the, the mistake is, is that people try to identify who this mystery whore is of Babylon when they are missing the point of the passage. The point of the passage is to remind us that this worldwide system of political power and religious power is going to dominate this world just like ancient Rome did and just like ancient Babylon did. And another superpower is going to rise up again in a confederation of ten nations. And then out of that ten nations, the Antichrist is going to come and rule and reign. And so that being said, let's look at verses 1 through 6. The first thought today I want to share with you. But keep in mind, the great whore of Babylon is a worldwide political and religious system that opposes the sovereign plans of God. And our takeaway thought today is worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. 
Look at verses 1 through 6. The first thought today is this. The expectation of the great whore of Babylon. The expectation of the great whore of Babylon. We can expect all of this is going to come to pass. Because the word of God declares it to be so. So when we see this culture that we're living in rapidly approaching a one world system of government and a one world system of religion and a one world system of economics and money, we should expect it. It's going to happen and we can't make it stop. Because whether we want to realize it or not, it is in the sovereign plans of God. God has written about it. And look at verse number one. In fact, verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6 remind us that this great whore of Babylon will commit adultery. Now, here in the word fornication, if we were to take that word out of its context and just study the word itself, we would know that it would mean sexual immorality or not being faithful uh, to your spouse or to having sex outside of marriage. But in the context, just like in other passages, we know that it's, it's speaking about spiritual adultery. And this system of government and political and religious system is going to come on the scene and causing humanity to commit spiritual adultery with the one true and living God. And so the Bible speaks about this seventh, this one of the seven angels come who is carrying one of those vials or bowls and talk to John and said, come here and I will show you this judgment of the great whore that sits on many waters. And we know later on in the book of Revelation chapter 17 that the many waters represents the people of the world and the nations. But then verse two, it speaks about how the kings of the earth would come in and commit spiritual adultery along with this great whore or this system of government because these systems are in opposition with God and his word. And it speaks about all the inhabitants. So all the people of the world are going to take part in the wine of her fornication. In other words, they are going to be drunken with this, with this whole philosophy and this whole false sense of worship. Then verse 3. It says, so he carried me away into the spirit of the wilderness. He was in the spirit, transported into what we call the wilderness or the desert. Now, notice the wilderness term in John's area of the world. It wasn't like we walk into the woods. It's we walk into a desert place, a place full of sand, something that was dry and desolate. And here the Bible says that he sees this woman sitting upon a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the Bible says that this woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. She was arrayed with gold and precious stones and pearls. And she had a, a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness and fornication. And then check out verse 5. I actually really like verse 5 because it lets us in the secret to understanding and unlocking who exactly Babylon is. Upon her forehead, the name says, the first name, would you say the first word with me? Mystery. Say it again, mystery, one more time, mystery. That's the key word here, mystery. The term mystery is a truth that is yet to been revealed. And so before we try to dive in here and try to, to, to be like the reformers back in the, in the early centuries after the Protestant Reformation, they would make a beeline to the Catholic Church in Rome, or even as many scholars today, or, or not many, but some are trying to make a beeline to Islam. So many of them are making grave mistakes by trying to insert their view by the lens of today's generation here when all it is, it's a mystery. We don't know until it all takes place. And we know that Babylon is an ancient system that opposes God. 
And so keep that in mind. And notice she's the mother of harlots and the mother of abominations, taking us back to Genesis 10, noting that she is the one who started all this, or in other words, Satan through her started all these false deities. Then the Bible says that the woman, drunken with blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Christ, and when he saw her, he wondered with great admiration. In other words, he was in amazement with great amazement. He was astonished with the great astonishment. I find it interesting as I summarize these six verses, she will commit adultery, be covered with blasphemy, be clothed with royalty, be called mystery, and martyr many. So many people in this time period are going to give their lives for Christ through death. Now, we may never be martyred, but I think there's a takeaway here that whenever we're called to the witness stand, we have to speak the name of Christ. Now, you might be, get, you might be called to a witness stand in, in many areas of your life. You might be called through school or education, or, or maybe you were when you were going to school, or maybe through your job, or, or through your family, or through your friends, or, or whatever your context, you're going to be called to a witness stand to speak on behalf of Christ. And when that comes, you have to speak. You might be called to the stand, and it might be life or death one day. Maybe. We know that happens as a reality throughout all the world. But here in this passage, we see the expectation of the great whore of Babylon. We know it's going to come. We know this whole religious and political system is going to come, and so we shouldn't fight it too hard. In fact, I would say let's not fight it at all. Let's make our energies and efforts focused on solely the Great Commission and telling people the good news of Christ. Now, secondly today, from verses 7 through 13, is we see that John sees all this take place, so through his vision we expect it to come, but now we see the angel explains it to him. So secondly today, the explanation of the great whore of Babylon, and found in verses 7 through 13. But remember, our takeaway thought today is this, worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. That's what we literally should walk away with from Revelation chapter 17. That, hey, there's only one God we're going to worship. There's only one being we're going to bow down and serve, and that is Jesus Christ, and we're going to tell everybody we know about his good grace. Look at verse 7. The Bible says that the angel says to John, he's like, why are you marveling, John? I will tell you about this mysterious woman and of this beast that is carrying her, which has these seven heads and these ten horns. So can you imagine this beast with seven heads and then... 10 horns? I mean, talk about sci-fi. Talk about a crazy movie right there. Verse 8, it says, The beast that you saw was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. What does this mean? Well, we know later on in the book of Revelation that this, the Antichrist, who is also this beast, is going to, he's either going to die and come back to life or it's going to be a pseudo-death and a pseudo-resurrection. And I lean towards the pseudo-death and pseudo-resurrection. Because only God has the capability to give life. But we know that the world is going to think he died and he's going to come back to life. And that's what it's referring to here. And we'll get to that later on. But it says here he comes out of the abyss or the bottomless pit, which goes down into perdition. And then the Bible says that all the world did wonder. They were in absolute marvel because he said, didn't, didn't this guy die? And now he's back to life. And now this is where scholars have debated for so many years about this phrase. Listen to this. This is not my opinion. This is the word of God. It says, whose names were not written in the book of life 
from the foundation of the world. Let's pause and let's address this. Years ago, I used to think this. I used to think that everybody's name was written in the book of life. And then when somebody reached the accountability that na- and they rejected Christ, their name was erased from it. However, this verse reveals to us that these specific saints in the tribulation period, names were never recorded in that book from the foundation of the world. So when we tie it all together, we have to understand, now listen, I don't understand everything about God's sovereignty and foreknowledge and all that stuff, but what I do know is God has a ledger book that records everybody who's going to come to faith, and then all those who are in that book will go to heaven, and all those who are not in that book will not go to heaven. So the Bible goes on to say, whom they beheld, these ones who are not found in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world, here it says that they beheld this beast that was and is not and yet is. And then the angel says in verse 9, here is the mind which has wisdom. He says the seven heads are seven mountains. Let's pause right here. This is the phrase that scholars for a long time would say that this is referring to Rome and the Catholic Church because Rome is a city on seven hills and it has to be Rome. However, the very next verse speaks about how these seven mountains represent seven kings. So maybe it is Rome, maybe it's not. We'll find out in the days to come. But what we do know is whether it's Rome or Babylon itself, we know that it is going to be a system, a worldwide system that's dominating the whole earth just like Rome was and just like Babylon. So he goes on to say that these seven are seven kings. It says five are fallen, one is, and the other is yet to come. And when he cometh, he must continue a short space. And then verse 11 here, it gets a little tricky here. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven and goeth into perdition. Let me try to explain this to you. It's speaking about eight kingdoms here. Five of them have already passed when John is seeing this vision. Remember, he receives this vision on the island of Patmos in 95 AD approximately. And the five kingdoms that he's already speaking about was Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the Medes and Persian, and Greece. The one that currently is, is Rome. And then the one that is to come is the ten confederation of nations that are mentioned of here in this passage. And out of those ten nations, number seven, out of the seventh one will come the eighth one, the Antichrist. All right? The explanation of the great whore of Babylon is found right here. And then in verse number 13, it says, These have one mind and shall give their power and strength to the beast. Utter chaos is going to transpire in the tribulation period. And then the Antichrist is going to come on the scene. He's going to be the savior of humanity, and they're going to put all their trust in him. And then he is going to break his peace treaty with Jerusalem and demand the whole world to worship him. Find it interesting. All this is going to take place. I wish we could say all this was fulfilled back in the days of Christ. It would be a whole lot easier, but it's simply not. I wish that it wasn't going to get this messy in the days to come. But the good news is, is God gave us a book that tells us about the future. And so if we are disciplined enough to study his word, we can know it's going to take place and we can tell everybody about the coming judgment to this world. And the only way to escape that judgment is through Christ, which leads us to verse number 14. And we see the third section of this chapter. So far, the expectation of the great whore of Babylon, the explanation of the great whore of Babylon is seen here. But then thirdly and finally, the extermination of the great whore of Babylon. Verses 14 through 18, the third and final thought, the extermination of the great whore of Babylon. 
Remember, our, our takeaway thought today is simple. Worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. But look at verse 14. And it's horrible passage about a horrific harlot and a crazy sci-fi looking beast. We find hope in one verse. Hope found in verse 14. And the hope is not found in the Antichrist, but found in the Christ. The hope is is not found in the beast, but found in the balm of Gilead. The hope is not found in the great whore of Babylon, but the great I am of Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. It says, these shall make war with the lamb. They're going to gather together in Megiddo, in that great valley, and they're going to seek to rage war against Jesus Christ. I find it interesting that the terminology here is lamb. Lambs are not known for war. But we see that this is the Lamb of God who is slain, in a sense, from the foundation of the world. And now he is the Lamb that is worthy to be praised. And he is the one who is the overcomer. Look at this phrase. It says, and the Lamb shall overcome them. In other words, this Lamb is the one who overcomes this army of people. This reminds me of the Gospels. When Jesus was placed on the cross... And how he overcame another obstacle in that season of his ministry. And that is he overcame the obstacle of sin. He overcame the obstacle of death. He overcame the obstacle of hell and the grave. And my dear friends, when Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says that he, when he was on that cross, he died for the sins of not just our sins, but also the sins of all humanity. And there all who cry out to him in salvation can receive the message of the gospel and hope in him. And today, listen, if you're, if you're hearing the sound of my voice and listening to, to, to the message today, you are either an overcomer, or I might invent a word here, an undercomer. That is, you either overcome all these things, or you will never overcome them. But check it out. It says, for he is the Lord of lords. He is the sovereign Lord who is going to show us how to rule and reign in his millennial kingdom. He is the king of kings. There has never been a king that has ever existed that is like this king. He is the sovereign one. He is the amazing one. And then it says, there's a group of people with him. Now, what I'm about to share with you, the minds of theology have been debating about all these things really since the first few centuries of the early church. And so what I'm about to share with you is not going to solve anything, but I just want to share and try to shed a little bit of light, and I don't claim to understand everything about these few words here. But notice the word called. The group that is with them, they were called. All this simply means is that they were invited to become part of his family. It says they were appointed, they were invited, they were called. We know that scripture says many are called. And then it goes on to say few are chosen. But then it says that those that are with them are called, but then it says chosen. Now, this is a unique term that often, just to, just to be frank with you, we try to avoid this term so many times because it means selected, it means favorited, and it means elected or chosen. Now, to deny the sovereignty of God in salvation is to deny words and passages like this. But to deny the responsibility of man in salvation is to deny other passages like I just quoted in 1 John 2. 
So as we come to this section of scripture, we know that there is a level of the sovereignty of God and salvation, but we know that all humanity is responsible for coming to faith in Christ. I like what Spurgeon said. He said, on the doorway of salvation, it says whosoever, but after you walk through that doorway and you turn back and you see it says chosen by God. I mean, it's just a reality. It says these people are called, chosen, and faithful. These are the ones that are going to remain steadfast and trustworthy and sure in this calling. So those who are faithful are those who have been chosen by God. And those who are chosen and faithful have been called by God. So whether you realize it or not, whether I want to admit it or not, we have been chosen by God. Now, I want to say this as well. Scripture clearly says that whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Scripture clearly says that God so loved the world, that's everybody in the world, that at one time he sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary's cross so that all the world can come to faith in him. So God is sovereign, yes, but man is responsible, yes. And when you lean too heavy on man's responsibility, I believe you get in trouble. And when you lean too heavy on God's sovereignty, you get in trouble. It's a balance. It is a combination of the two. I like what one person came and asked the preacher one time, said, hey, hey, pastor, how do, you, how do you harmonize God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? And he said, I didn't know I had to harmonize friends. They are not enemies. In fact, somebody explained it to me this way, that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is like a railroad track. And when you look down the railroad track, they kind of seem like they're pointing and hitting each other. But when you walk slowly down the railroad, you notice that they are line by line. But this group of people that are with Christ are called, chosen, and faithful. But then verse 15, it says, He that said to me, this angel speaks and says, The waters that you saw and observed where that whore is sitting are people, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And then verse 16, it says, And the ten horns, this is the, as Daniel kind of recorded in his prophetic book many, many centuries ago, that these are going to arise a ten confederate nations or uh, some type of, of alliance of ten nations are going to come together. And then the Bible says that these are going to eventually come to hate this system of government called the great whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. In other words, that system of government is going to come to be destroyed and then we see the eighth coming to power the Antichrist to solve the world's problems. Then verse 17 says, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will and to agree and to give their kingdom unto the beast until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Now the interesting part about verse 17 is you may not have caught this, but what's being said here is that yes, we know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. We know that he has power on this earth, but the power that he has been given has been given by God and that nothing will be accomplished unless God declares it. And so here it's interesting that, that Satan or the Antichrist is not even going to rise to power solely on his own merit and his own power, but based upon the sovereign plans of God. And so all this will come to pass. We can expect it all. And we can share it all, but, but the interesting thing is, is this whole thing will be exterminated and come to destruction. And that's what chapter 18 is all about. But, but, but look at verse 18. It says, and the woman which you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Now, what does all this have to do with you and me? 
if, if, we're under, if we understand eschatology correct, the church is going to be raptured and then the, the seven years are going to take place and midway through the Antichrist will reign and we'll see all this destruction and all this havoc take place. What does that have to do with you and me? We're in the church age, if you will. We're in the dispensation of the grace in the church. What does this have to do with you and me? Well, it has everything to do with you and me because we know it's going to take place and we are called to worship one God, not the God of the Babylonians or as one preacher said, the, the God of the, the Balonians. <laughs> we're to worship the one true God, Jesus, and tell everybody about him. So let me ask you this. How's your worship today? How's your service today? Are you worshiping and, and serving him with your life? Are you telling everybody that you know about this Jesus that we know? Literally, I believe that every relationship that we have, whether it's a friendship or our partnership or our marriage or whatever it is, family, friend, or foe, every time we get around those people, our main focus in that conversation and setting should be, have I told them about Jesus Christ just yet? Am I living a life that is declaring the goodness of God? Well, there was a man who did that. He was a pastor in Lockport, New York, by the name of Pastor Babkik. And he took it upon himself to frequently walk through the city of New York to admire God's beautiful creation. He would go and, and see the scenery, and he would look out over Lake Ontario, and he would tell his wife just before he would leave and go on his walks, of prayer and meditation, he would say this to her, going out to see the Father's world. At age 42 in 1901, he tragically passed away. And his wife, Catherine, compiled all of his resources and some of his poems and, and writings and compiled it together and published a work that was called Thoughts for Everyday Living that contained a poem that we're all actually familiar with. That poem is actually found in your hymnal. And if you would, I want to show you the hymnal, the song. It's hymn number 143. And so most likely back in the 1800s, this, the lyrics were penned. But it wasn't until 1915 when these lyrics were placed to a melody and I just want to read you this because I think it coincides with our passage today. Very simple, very simply. Notice it says, verse one says, this is my father's world and to my listening ears, all nature sings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my father's world. I rest me in the thought of rocks and trees, of skies and seas, his hand, the wonders wrought. Verse two says, this is my father's world, the birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white, declare the maker's praise. This is my father's world, he shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass, he speaks to me everywhere. Verse 3, this is my father's world, oh let me never forget. That though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. You see, from the beginning of creation, Satan has been trying to overthrow the God of this world. 
But what we see in the end is this is not Satan's world. This is God's world. Worship and serve the true God and tell everybody about the Son of God. What's up, guys? Brian here again. Just wanted to say thanks again for tuning in to today's episode. You can check out this full message at PastorBrianRalph.com or Apple Podcasts or Spotify Podcasts. Keep the Faith is a ministry of Clearbrook Baptist Church in Roanoke, Virginia. If you're free one Sunday or Wednesday, we'd love for you to join us for worship. Until next time, God bless. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. I'm gonna walk by, I'm gonna keep my, I'm gonna live by faith. Keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith, keep the faith.